Hi, I'm Dr. Robin Koslowitz, clinical psychologist, parenting educator, and post-traumatic parent. Welcome to the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast, where we learn to provide our children with a healthy childhood, even if ours was anything but. Or maybe we had a wonderful childhood, but recent events in our lives have left us reeling. Let's face it, after 2020, we're all post-traumatic parents now. Welcome. Hi, welcome to the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast, where we talk about giving our kids a healthy childhood, even if ours was anything but. Today, we are going to be doing a solo episode because there are so many things that we have been exploring that we've wanted to talk about in a solo episode. Just to explain, my voice has been horrific these past few weeks. Um, I have really bad asthma. And in a future episode, we're going to talk about the connection between trauma and autoimmune diseases such as asthma and arthritis, but that's for the future. So I'm going to apologize in advance for my voice, but I think there comes a point where we just have to do what we set out to do, even if life barriers stand in our way. Otherwise, we never get anything accomplished. So I was asked such an interesting question about post-traumatic parenting, and I really thought it's worth exploring and exploring what I have learned in all the research I did for writing the book and in all the conversations I've had with the post-traumatic parenting community on Instagram and on LinkedIn and the responses I've gotten to this podcast. And I thought that this is worth exploring because my understanding of this has evolved and I think a lot of our understanding of this has evolved. The question was, why parenting in particular? Why is parenting so special that we have to talk about post-traumatic parenting? What about post-traumatic working? What about post-traumatic entrepreneurship? What about post-traumatic exercising, right? Why parenting? And I think that is a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of trauma and the nature of parenting. So first of all, we have to understand that Not all traumas are traumatic, meaning that there are some expected developmental traumas, such as matrescence and patrescence, that are already in upheaval, and we kind of expect them. We just see them as this expected thing, like everybody knows that having a baby is going to upend our life, and it's going to be stressful, and it's going to change things. And we, you know, anybody who reads any mommy blogs, anybody who watches any comedy sitcoms where there's a baby knows that babies are these adorable little earthquakes that just completely shake up our lives. But to the non-traumatized brain, it's what we call an expected tolerable stress, and that's plenty difficult. But what happens to the traumatized brain? What happens to that brain that already has been reformulated due to trauma. So yes, matrescence and patrescence are expected developmental traumas that everybody has. And why am I calling them traumas? Because trauma is an experience that shakes up our sense of who we are in the world. Trauma is experience that is too big for our brain to metabolize. It's an experience where we feel completely alone and overwhelmed with these giant emotions that are coming at us too fast, too much, too intense, and we just can't seem to get on top of them, right? And becoming a parent, 
is all of those things. Trauma also removes the illusion of safety that we have in the world. So all of those things are what happen when we have a baby. And when we have a baby and that's the only expected developmental trauma, that's kind of okay because we expected it. It was sort of what we signed up for. And we already have that brain that can handle tolerable expected stress. So it's okay. But a brain that is already sensitized to traumatic experiences handles that completely differently. The metaphor I like to use most for trauma is it's like an app running in the background. Trauma will drain the battery and keeps giving itself permissions unless we actively limit them. It's like well-intentioned malware that was baked into the phone. The goal of the trauma app is to restore a sense of safety. Actual real safety isn't in its wheelhouse because the trauma app can't tell the difference between feeling safe and being safe. In fact, many of the behaviors that we engage in because the trauma app is running the show make us less safe in actuality, but in the moment they feel safe. Remember the scene in Toy Story 2 where Jessie is clinging to the struts of a plane, she's just fallen out of the luggage compartment, and the plane is taking off. Those struts are the only stability she has. She's not actually safe because as the plane gains altitude, those struts will become icy and impossible to grip, and wind pressure will likely tear her to shreds since she's a doll. But in that situation, the struts feel safe. Then Woody extends his lasso to her. He's on a horse on the ground, and he throws his lasso up into the sky. He wants her to let go of the struts, which feel so safe, and grab onto the rope where he can haul her to actual safety. Initially, Jesse doesn't want to let go. That's the trauma app. It wants us to cling on to the feeling of safety. But the things that are actually safe, that will lead us back to the safe place we want to go, in Toy Story 2, that's back to Andy's room and home, those are the ones that we don't do because the trauma app tells us to hold on to the illusion of safety. That's why we cling to behaviors that we know are counterproductive. This is why if our trauma behavior, for example, is people-pleasing, we find ourselves saying yes, even though we know it's not consistent with our values. If we value managing our time properly and going home on time so that we can spend the evening with our kids and our boss says, do you mind staying just like an extra 45 minutes late? It feels safe to say yes because people-pleasing is the behavior that our trauma app is telling us to engage in. It's not actually safe, right? Because when we get home late, and then we can't have the evening we envisioned with our kids and shame and guilt set in and we're not living in accordance with our values. It's not actually safe, but it feels safe. And when the trauma app is operating and it has removed permissions from our true self, then the trauma app is running the show and we find ourselves saying yes, even though we meant to say no. And it's like that with so many behaviors that the trauma app has taught us make us feel safe. The trauma app is overriding our true self, our ability to act in accordance with our values. So parenting already feels unsafe. It's big. It's stressful. It's new. Even when it's not our first kid, 
it's new in the sense that each child is unique. Parenting two or three kids is entirely different than parenting one baby, right? And as our kids get to each new developmental stage, we've never been here before, right? So maybe we figured out like the toddler years and we kind of get into our stride about keeping toddlers alive because they're basically suicidal. You know, we got that. But now we're dealing with like elementary school angst and my best friend doesn't want to talk to me or like major you know, meltdowns over homework or things like that. And it's like, oh, this is new and this feels big and the stakes feel high and I feel so unsafe. The trauma app wants us to think of ourselves as fine because remember, it's well-intentioned malware. It hides in other apps like those malware links we're not supposed to click on. You know when you get those like badly spelled emails from like supposedly Instagram or Microsoft? Trauma like hides in them. And we click on those links we shouldn't be clicking on. So it hides in that true sense of self we have using concepts like nice or organized or fine to get us to click on those links, right? And, you know, just like malware can be really sophisticated and that email from Instagram may not be spelled so poorly and that email from Zoom or Microsoft may actually look really, really legit. We click on that link because it's deceptive, because it's like, oh, right, I'm a nice person. I say yes. Oh, right, I'm going to dissociate now because it feels safe, even though what my kids need is a present parent. Oh, yeah, I'm going to let myself get drawn into family drama because I need to maintain connection because I'm connected to my family. I'm attached to my family of origin. I need to be a nice person, even though I know that the subsequent bad mood is going to be bad for my parenting. We click on those links because they look like it's our true self speaking. It's deceptive in that way. I've had people come into therapy and say things like, so my father abused me and I totally got over it. I've been fine for years. Then he died. Now I had a few episodes of post-traumatic stress after the funeral. I want to just deal with it and go back to being fine. So here's my rule of thumb that I look for in therapy. Somewhat facetious, but it's, it's pretty accurate. Just, fine, deal, nice. I'm always on the lookout for my four-letter words. In my office, words like just or fine are banned because PTSD doesn't always look like shaking on the floor panicking. It's not always flashbacks and it's not always those dramatic panic attacks you see in the movies. I mean, those are horrible too. My PTSD did take the form of intrusive visual auditory and especially tactile flashbacks for a very long time. I'm not going to minimize those. Those were pretty horrible and I did not enjoy them when they were happening. But that's not the only part of PTSD that we have to worry about. The thing is, those horrible, panicky flashbacks, intrusive thoughts, those visual intrusions, right? Those panicky, like literally shaking and sweating, they take up so much of our attention that we forget that there's so many other parts, right? PTSD is also about the narrowing of our life. That trauma app wants us to keep our life as small as possible, to direct all the battery functions towards it and that sense of safety and nothing else. The bigger our lives, the more our sense of self living our valued life diverts battery function from safety, trauma doesn't like that. The smaller our life, the more manageable it feels. 
And this way, trauma can be somewhat like OCD, right? OCD wants us to keep our lives small because the smaller, the more, again, another form of well-intentioned malware, the more it has control over us. The bigger our life, the weaker this app is. The more our true self is in the driver's seat, the weaker our trauma self becomes, the weaker that app becomes, the more permissions we're removing from it. PTSD wants us to keep our lives small because PTSD sees a big life as inherently messier, inherently more stressful, which is true. The bigger your life, statistically speaking, it's going to be more stressful, right? The more things you add in, the more experiences you have, the more friends you have, the more you can worry that one of them is mad at you. The more responsibilities you get at work because you get promoted, the more things you could fail at. The more activities you engage in with your kids, the more opportunities we have to mess up. That's so normal. And those are part of growth. Those are healthy. That's what we want. But trauma is like, no, 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 keep your life small, keep your life small. Parenting, by definition, is a bigger life. The entire process of matrescence and patrescence, the giving birth of our parenting selves, means we're expanding exponentially, right? We're getting bigger. Trauma really doesn't like that. The app is struggling with that. It wants us to keep our lives small. Small is predictable. Small is safe. Safe is another four-letter word that we look for. Narrow is manageable, right? And trying to control the uncontrollable is one of the big things the trauma app is trying to do. It's trying to remove all possibilities of failure, right? It's trying to keep all opportunities for stress away. But we need some stress. Stress is part of life. It's part of the normative part of living. Big is bad. Big consumes resources. The trauma app does not like that. But there's already this disconnect. There's already this push and pull between two imperatives, parenting, which means big, expansion, the bringing in of another human into our sense of self, and the trauma app that wants to keep our lives small. The minute we're parenting from a place of smallness and narrowness is the minute we're not parenting in conjunction with our values. Because we know that our kids need big. Parenting is big. It's meant to be big. One of the things the trauma app does to keep us feeling safe is to push away loved ones. But we obviously can't do that with our kids, right? We have this drive to be their attachment figures. We feel this overwhelming love and we know we can't keep our life small. We can push a lot of people away, our friends, our coworkers who want to become more than coworkers and perhaps friends, sometimes our spouses, our parenting partners, our loved ones. We can push a lot of people away, or at least we can manage our relationships with them and keep them small and narrow and manageable. We can't do that with our kids. Can't do it with our child. We can't do that with our baby, our toddler, our adolescent. We just can't. And we can't really parent in isolation, right? We need support, which means we can't do what we usually do with trauma and a sense of overwhelming stress, which is isolate, lick our wounds, perhaps dissociate, perhaps bury ourselves in other less important tasks that nonetheless give us a sense that we're competent at something. The trauma app is also forcing us to make decisions out of fear. It's a fear that we don't even know is there. It's a fear that operates in the background. 
It's fear of fear. I think one of the wisest things I've ever heard was Winston Churchill saying, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Because when we fear fear itself, it's fear of those overwhelming sensations of too much, too fast, too loud, too intense. Guess what? A crying baby who won't stop is going to trigger those. And it will feel exactly how it felt when we were first traumatized. If you are a post-traumatic parent and you had this experience of your baby basically bringing you to your knees, I can remember pacing the floor with a crying baby who wouldn't stop crying. And I tried to feed her and change her diaper and sing to her and rock her and put her in her carriage and rock the carriage and pace my kitchen with her. And I tried all of those things again and again, and she just wouldn't stop crying. And my fears just started mounting. I'm not cut out to be a parent. I'm doing this all wrong. I don't know what I'm doing. Maybe there's something seriously wrong with her that I'm overlooking. Maybe I need to undress her, but then maybe that'll startle her more. Maybe I need to warm her up more. Maybe she's too hot. Maybe she's too cold, right? And those feelings feel as intense as a flashback. It feels like we just want to cry and sink to the floor in a puddle and beg the baby to please stop crying. Or that four-year-old that's having that meltdown in public. You know that meltdown where they go completely boneless and the entire world, it feels like, at the at that mall food court or whatever, is staring at you with judgment in their eyes and you can't physically move them and they're just completely melted down, especially when that's in public. It can feel as intense as a flashback. Sometimes it can trigger a flashback. It can feel like such a trauma. This is where our body, our interoceptive sense of what's going on inside. Interoception just means our sense of our own calmness and stress, our own sense of like my heart is pounding. Like right now I'm speaking and I sense my vocal cords vibrating, right? Things like that. It gets overwritten. And it gets commandeered, like it just gets completely overwritten by that trauma app. And instead of our body being an asset in terms of co-regulation with our child, it becomes a giant liability, right? And what we used to have was our body, we are biologically primed to be able to attune to our babies. We are able to get into that mindset, right? Certainly if we carried the baby inside of us, We're a little bit more biologically primed, but any caregiver, our bodies are trying so hard to co-regulate with this baby. Our body knows instinctively how to do it. But if our interoceptive sense has been hijacked by the trauma app, then all of a sudden, our interoceptive sense doesn't know what to do with those feelings of stress because we know how to shut those down. The trauma app knows how to restore a sense of safety. But that's not going to help us co-regulate. The trauma app will either have us dissociate. The trauma app might have us self-blame and self-castigate or people please, none of which helps in that moment. Being a perfectionist, there is no perfect way, I promise, and I'm saying this as a child psychologist with 20 years of experience working with dysregulated kids And as a mom of kids who have sometimes had meltdowns, there is no perfect way to deal with a child's meltdown. There is no magic bullet. There's no trick. There's no technique. Anyone who tells you there is is selling something, to paraphrase the Princess Bride. There's no perfect way to help a child deal with a meltdown other than 
using our body as an asset. But in that moment, that biological ability we have, that our own interoception becomes self-soothing, becomes self-regulation, becomes co-regulation, if trauma has overwritten that, it's going to be really hard. And that's why post-traumatic parenting, as opposed to post-traumatic working or exercising or living. Yes, those things, sure, trauma is going to make it really hard to deal with our own stress response. And I think, you know, if anybody wants to investigate this further, read Stephen Porges, read about polyvagal theory. There's a lot that you can do to learn how to handle this and understand this. But for parenting, this is especially complicated and difficult. That trauma app is looking at that four-year-old having a meltdown, and this is an emergency. It needs to restore our sense of safety. doesn't need to make us actually safe. So here is where our body becomes such a liability because most of our coping tools for too much, too fast, too loud, too intense, those trauma reactions that bring us right back to the original trauma we experienced don't work for parenting. Dissociation happens to be mine. Not really an option, especially not in public, right? I cannot just kind of wander away from my four-year-old having a meltdown and play Candy Crush or something, right? Not going to work, especially if we want to help co-regulate because co-regulation requires presence, especially not if we value present parenting. People-pleasing, not going to work. Busying ourselves with something else, not helpful. Distraction, it's not better. It's dissociation light. Activation and channeling into an activity actually could work, but it's not really feasible. Unless you've ever tried to move a child in the middle of a meltdown, they go boneless. I actually love the um, Mo Willems picture book, Nuffle Bunny. And in that book, there's a little girl who goes boneless and just the image and the drawing of how Mo Willems depicts what boneless looks like and the parents, the expression on the parents' faces is so classic because anybody who's ever tried to get a boneless child off a busy sidewalk can totally understand what that feels like. They're like dead weight. It feels like a magic trick where they just doubled their body weight or like they're mutants who increased their relationship to gravity or something. It's, it's just like magical, not in a good way. So activation and channeling into an activity might work. If you're already dressed, it's an infant and you have the presence of mind and you own a baby jogger or something, or, you know, distraction, if you can distract them and yourself, mm, if you can, right? But if you're in the middle of work from home and you're trying to get dinner on the table for the older kids, the baby won't stop crying, the phone won't stop ringing, your boss wanted that email two hours ago, it's not really going to work, right? It's not like right now you can be like, okay, stop the world, I'm getting off and going for a run. Just not going to happen. Anyone who thinks that that could happen isn't a parent. People-pleasing, being self-sacrificing doesn't really help when a toddler's brain is offline. The problem is once that trauma app starts operating, it commandeers a lot of our psychological functions, the ones that we would normally develop. So had we not had trauma in our childhood, had we perhaps had exemplars who co-regulated with us and showed us what that feels like from the inside, or even if we had that normative childhood and we had those co-regulation experiences to an extent, but then we had our traumas in like young adulthood or even recently, and now the trauma app has overwritten them, 
all of a sudden those things go out the window. Our stress coping tools that were adaptive, our ability to be like, this is just a sensation of stress. It's not in and of itself problematic, threatening, or dangerous. It's okay. We don't have to shame and blame ourselves like a real mom wouldn't be feeling this. There's something wrong with me or the level of the stress is too much. I need to get a grip. We wouldn't have that. Before trauma, we had some stress coping tools. Some of them were likely adaptive. But then trauma came, overwrote those, and made its coping tools the default option and almost the best option. Because once they're defaults, we just kind of go to them automatically. This is where neuroplasticity can be challenging news, right? Because if our brain likes to default to something, it just goes there. It's like I've spoken about this before. I don't eat sugar because I am trying to reclaim my body's relationship with itself from stress. And I have discovered that sugar can really, really exacerbate autoimmune conditions for me. Not a medical doctor, so not making medical recommendations. This is what works for me. So sugar doesn't even really tempt me. And particularly chocolate, it's just not a flavor that I look for anymore. Savory tempts me a lot, but sugar, eh, could resist it. I never crave sweets unless I go to a particular block in my hometown and pass a particular bakery, and then I am suddenly craving chocolate-covered seven-layer cake that is the treat my dad and I used to share when we went to that bakery when I was a little kid. Because my brain associates that block and that bakery with that treat and a certain sense of safety and connection with my dad. And all of a sudden, I am just craving it. Because of neuroplasticity, neurons that fire together, wire together. My brain associates that block with that treat, and then I want it. And that's why when people talk about neuroplasticity as good news, like, sure, it's good news that we can, with a lot of effort, retrain our brain and peer different neurons together. That's good news, but it takes a lot of effort. That's the part that's challenging news. Our own body stress response is not the problem. That's what the trauma app thinks is the problem. Those sensations are just our body responding to stress, and that's totally fine. Our body responds to stress in this way because our body is trying to keep us alive. It's trying to help us. It's trying to get us out of danger. It's okay to acknowledge stress, breathe through it, accept that it's difficult. It's okay to feel those sensations in response to our baby or our toddler or our adolescent, right? To go from calm to completely furious or completely overwhelmed or completely terrified or completely overwhelmed with multiple emotions in half a second because of the way an adolescent spoke to us, because of a baby who won't stop crying, because of a toddler's meltdown in public, totally normal. Our body does not see the difference between my adolescent is speaking to me really disrespectfully and there's a man with a gun standing in front of my teenager trying to shoot my teenager. I need to save the kid. The trauma app doesn't see the difference between those two things. Our body doesn't see the difference. So our body is trying to give us the tools to help us cope with danger, real danger. 
because our body does not see the difference between man with gun in front of kid need to eliminate threat to child, right? Which is where my brain would go, right? My brain would go to fight in that situation versus my child just said something really disrespectful to me. The stress response doesn't know the difference. The trauma app just wants the stress response to go away. The trauma app doesn't necessarily want us to act in accordance with our values because we might have to sit in the stress response a little longer. It's okay to talk back to the trauma app who's just trying to override ourself because remember, it's malware, but it's benevolent malware. It truly desires to keep us safe and say, this narrative you're giving me about other people judging me, about how a real mom wouldn't get into this mess, a real mom would know how to calm her kid. It's not helpful now, so I'm going to mute it. I'll listen to those notes later. Sure, I will listen to you. I'll listen to the information you're trying to give me when I can engage with them. For now, I'm going to activate my deep breathing app, my PMR app, my moving or fidgeting in place app. Because in trying to restore our sense of safety, the trauma app will temporarily flood us to get us to give it all the permissions and let it take over. Benign malware, remember? It's trying so hard to get us to turn over to the control to click on that link. It's our job to restrict its permissions and to tell it, nope, I got this. Staying in control. Your coping tools, the ones that restore a sense of safety, I know my coping tools that restore my sense of safety, don't allow me to parent in accordance with my values. They don't allow me to parent with my full sense from a place of bigness and expansion. The tricky thing is they also are somewhat valid. There are times that I need to dissociate as a stress management tool. There are times that I need to manage relationships intelligently which has elements of people-pleasing in it, right? And that will be helpful. And that's why it's so deceptive. That's why those links look so real. They really do look like they're coming from our true self, right? Like those links that look like they're coming from Instagram or Microsoft or Zoom, and they look real. But they're not. Let's try a different scenario. Let's try someone who was raised as the golden child in a family, someone who became a people-pleaser to the alpha in a situation whether that was a critical stepfather or a narcissistic mother or even a demanding teacher. Let's say she learned that people-pleasing is the best way to get by. Then you're accepted, which can feel like love. Then you're not shamed or blamed, criticized or put down. Now she has that boss who wants her to stay late. She knows staying late will not be fair to her kids, her family, her parenting partner. But even as her entire body wants to say no, the trauma app overwrites her response and she finds herself saying yes. Why? Because as soon as the boss asks, the stress sensations that rise, ironically, she's more stressed because she knows she wants to say no. Those sensations feel intolerable. The trauma app wants to restore a sense of safety. It wants those sensations to go down. The minute she says yes, those sensations will go down. But later, the shame, the guilt, the self-loathing, That's okay, though. Trauma is okay with that because those sensations increase its power, increase your desire to give it more permissions. Trauma doesn't see guilt or shame as problems because those are both enhancing its strengths. The more we feel guilt and shame, the more we have a stress response, the more permissions it can take for itself. Trauma has us dissociate, numb, 
get ourselves, our true selves, offline in order to manage overwhelming stress. We just can't do that in parenting. That numbness also creates an absence of joy. Clinically, we actually call that anhedonia because when we turn off emotions, it turns out we turn them all off. But as Mary Ainsworth, the mother of attachment research, said, in the end, attachment is all about shared joy, the sheer joy in existence, taking delight. Mom is taking delight in baby. Baby is taking delight in mom. When Mary Ainsworth studied securely attached peers, first in Uganda, then in Baltimore, she discovered that the one thing they all had in common was this feeling of mutual delight that was very much alive between them. Mutual delight is attachment. But trauma overwrites joy. Joy to trauma is not that important because it has nothing to do with survival. Joy, in some ways, is the least important emotion when it comes to survival. Survival is about fear. Survival is about anger. Those two emotions arise in connection with things that are existential threats. Joy arises from our true self. So you see the problem here? We don't even notice it till something makes us notice, right? We don't see it. Until we can't parent in accordance with our values, until our parenting falls apart, those coping tools, there are so many, I'm only saying a few of them, numbing, keeping our lives small, people-pleasing, so many more, they're operating in the background. We don't realize it. Till the battery is totally drained, but the phone should have been fully charged, right? It's been on the charging cradle all day. And then we realize to what extent this app has been operating in the background. Sometimes it's when we explode at our kids and we wonder, where did that come from? Right? Like, it's clearly not this kid who I'm yelling at because this explosion is way too much. What I always say is, how do we know when the trauma app is running the show? When our inner child is trying to parent our child, it's when we're disproportionate. When I'm way more mad at my kid coming home late half an hour than I should be. When I'm way more rattled than my toddler's meltdown than I should be. Way more hurt when my baby wants to go to my husband instead of me than I should be. That's when I know, oh, this isn't my true self. The trauma app is operating. Sometimes it's when we can't muster up the interest to talk to a kid about something they want to share. That sensation of, I'm just trying to numb myself and zone out. Why is this small human making mouth noises at me? It's just our kid who came home from school who wants to tell this kind of pointless long story about, you know, something that happened at recess. And it's just like, why are you making noise? Right. And our brain is doing that because I'm so focused on my dissociation that I can't in the moment delight in my child, enjoy hearing the story that might not be all that important in the grand scheme of like world poverty and things, but it's important to them. So therefore important to me. And when I'm not dissociated, I want to hear simply because I take such delight in my child and in our relationship. And of course, it's just our kid, right? Who wants to chat with a parent because that's what kids do. Thank goodness, right? If my kid does not notice that I'm dissociated and just comes over and starts to chat with me, I did my job. I was an excellent parent. I was parenting in accordance with my values because my kid is not sacrificing their own needs for my sake. My kid is not the manager of my emotional state. 
I, in many ways, growing up was sometimes the manager of my parents' emotional states because that's what happens when you're parented by a seriously ill parent who has a heart condition. You don't want to get that seriously ill parent feeling strong emotions, right? Because when they feel strong emotions, they have heart attacks and that doesn't feel very good and that's scary and that feels shameful and guilt and all of those things and terror. So I became very good at being the custodian of my parents' emotions as a child, not because they wanted me to, not because they even realized, but because of the situation, right? When my kid's not the custodian of my emotions, that means I parented in accordance with my values. That's amazing. That's great. That's what I'm looking for. That's what I'm hoping for. But in the moment, it feels so confusing. Parenting can be such a confusing time in our healing. Suppose you just decided to set boundaries with your family of origin. You start to realize that the trauma app overrides your functions, creates people-pleasing, and you just started to learn to say that monumentally difficult one-syllable word, no. You started thinking, hey, I'm a person too. I have rights. I don't always have to self-sacrifice. It's okay for me to protect my time because my time is, in many ways, my values. They're interchangeable. Then along comes a baby, and boundaries are just not possible. We can't tell a baby, it's my sleep time now, please only request food politely during waking hours. We can tell that to a 15-year-old, not to a 15-day-old or even a 15-month-old. So suddenly it's so confusing because it's like, wait, I just learned this thing called boundaries and that I have a right to protect my time and that I have a right to sometimes put my own needs first. And now it's so confusing because the baby comes and undoes all of that. So was I wrong about boundaries? Was I right about boundaries? How does that work? We're going to do a deep dive into boundaries on a different episode, but let's remember, boundaries are confusing for many post-traumatic parents, especially entangled ones. And then babies come and completely upend our understanding of boundaries all over again. And that's confusing. Ultimately, the question over and over again that I hear from post-traumatic parents is, how can I be a good enough mother? How can I be a good enough parent if I don't feel like a good enough person? And that sense is going to underlie our ability to lower the permissions our trauma app has because that shame and that guilt, they just tend to give the trauma app more permissions. And then that becomes so confusing. And that's why post-traumatic parenting, that's why parenting, it especially, is such a complicated part of post-traumatic recovery. And that's why we need to devote our time and attention to this. Because when we parent in accordance with our values, when we parent in a way that removes permissions from our trauma app, what we are really doing is not only raising a child, we're also recovering from trauma. And that way, our children become a mirror, a map, and a motivator to our recovery. They hold up a mirror to how far we've come in terms of our ability to self-regulate, co-regulate, act in accordance with our values. They're the map to where we want to go. I want to provide these attachment experiences to my child. That's what I value. And that means I need to renegotiate the permissions the trauma app currently has. And they're the motivation. I truly believe that there's nothing in life more motivating than our desire to parent in accordance with our values 
that that relationship is so much more motivating and gets us to push ourselves through discomfort because it's really hard to remove permissions from that trauma app. It's so complicated and difficult. It takes so much work. But for the sake of our relationship with our kids, that's the first time sometimes in our life that we're willing to do it. Because otherwise, the default option that we figured out, that the trauma app figured out that feels so safe, it's so much easier. And our brains like easy. Our brains like to default to what they're used to doing. That's what neuroplasticity is. But for our kids, because they're that map, that mirror, and that motivation, that's why we finally do this. What we won't do for our own sake, the discomfort we won't endure for the sense of for ourselves, we'll do for our kids. And that's why I believe post-traumatic parenting is such a special case of trauma recovery. And that's why post-traumatic parenting. I would love to hear what you think. I'd love to hear your questions, your thoughts, your particular trauma coping tools, what your trauma app tells you to do and how that affects your parenting. Please join us on Instagram where we continue this conversation all along. Please check out drrobinhoslowitz.com for all the resources that we have, including the post-traumatic parenting tip sheet. And please join our community. We have a subscription community that's only 99 cents a month on Instagram because I wanted to make it as accessible as possible so that no one should ever lose the opportunity to be part of our community. And there's also a lot of free content on Instagram. Please join us. I really want to hear your thoughts. Bye-bye, everybody. I'm here on social media to be descriptive, not prescriptive. I'm here to educate, inform, and hopefully entertain, but never to treat. If listening to this podcast helps you realize that you need therapy, I am all for that. But podcasts aren't therapy. Please reach out to a mental health professional licensed in your jurisdiction. You'll be glad you did. Wish post-traumatic parenting was a talk show, not a podcast? you have a question for me or for my guests? Great news. You can ask those questions by following me on Instagram. My handle is at Dr. Kozlowitz Psychology. It's also in the show notes. I love it when people reach out, DM, or post a question. Who knows? Your question might spark an entire episode. Come join our community. We get it. We're post-traumatic parents too. Can't wait to hear from you.